let's talk about Christmas. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not into uh, polls and surveys too much because uh, sometimes they're sort of interesting, but, but pollsters say that the number of Americans that believe in some sort of God are, are, is declining, kind of, you know, that happened in Europe a long time ago. Um, but starting to happen in America, sort of the same, the same decline. Still, about 76% of Americans believe in God with certainty. That's what they would say. There's, they're certain that there's a God. 23% of people in Western Europe say that. So in all of those European countries. But what Americans believe about God is uh, all over the place. Very diverse. One survey asked those who believe, they said, how much does God interact with the world? These are people that said they believe. And but, but about half of Americans say they believe the God of the Bible. So they would say God does intervene in the world in some way. 85% of Americans believe God is loving, but 45% don't believe God is involved in the world in a meaningful way. So I was like looking at those statistics and I'm going, well, that suggests that quite a few people think a loving God would not be very involved in the world today. So I was trying to put all that together. That's kind of interesting. Maybe the world is too painful a place for him to be involved. Maybe that's what they think. Maybe he gave up. Maybe he uh, wants us to figure it out on our own. My guess is they hadn't really thought it through very much when they answered those questions, most people. Uh, it's just kind of vague our spirituality in the United States these days. Those kinds of questions though are really good questions and those are the things that thoughtful people wrestle with and they should wrestle with those questions because they're so important. God's existence, God's involvement, and the nature of God himself. What's he like? How can we possibly know? How can we know? I've heard people say if God were really loving he would just show himself. He would come down here where we could see him and hear from him directly. Well, you know, the story of Christmas is pretty much God's response to that idea. Only it's much, much better. The Christmas story is much, much better. God did come down. Not just to give an afternoon lecture um, showing some reasons maybe we ought to believe in him but he actually entered into our very life. What God did was way better because if God did come down for an afternoon lecture, let's say God came down. Actually, he did do that on Mount Sinai. He did come down. And what do we say about that? Well, that was a long time ago. And uh, we don't know if that really happened. That, that's a myth or that's not true. But he really did come down. But let's say he did come down 3,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 200 years ago. Let's say he came down 200 years ago and gave a big lecture to a group of important people about what he's like and what he wants from people. People today wouldn't believe it. They would say, that, well, that, that was faked, or that's a myth, or those people that were there for that were deluded, right? The same stuff they say about what God actually did do. So it doesn't really work to have God just come down here and show us and give us a lecture. If he came today, if God came today at your insistence, People 500 years from now would say, well, that was a myth. That's a delusion. Those people didn't know. They know. What proof do we actually have that he came down? But what happened, what really did happen about 2,000 years ago, in an age that was very cynical, the Greco-Roman world was not 
easy believism stuff. They, they were pretty cynical people, but they didn't even believe in their own gods. Most of the people, simple people did, but educated people didn't really believe in them. But what God did then far surpasses what we could have expected God to do if we just wanted him to come down. So this morning I want to look at the Christmas story as it's presented to us by Matthew. So if you want to open your Bible to Matthew's gospel, we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. Matthew was a friend of Jesus. He knew Mary personally, the mother of Jesus. He got the story firsthand. And that story is very familiar, of course. Uh, Mary received a visit from an angel, an angel who in the Old Testament had visited Daniel. And that angel announced that she would give birth to the Messiah. And when she questioned how this could happen, since she was a virgin, she was told the child would be conceived miraculously by the power of God, directly. So Mary conceived, and, and Joseph, as we heard this morning, her fiancé couldn't believe her story. And he was brought to understand by the means of an intensely powerful dream that he had. Not any dream. There's the kind of dream that prophets have that's super intense. It's like a visitation, and it's so vivid, and it's so specific that the one who has a dream like that knows that it's God who is speaking. And it's the content of the message that tells us what we need to know about God. So the questions are like, is God involved in the world? Is God near or is he distant? Is he engaged or is he absent? Is he a judge of the world or is he a life skills coach? Or something else altogether? What is he like? Well, here's Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all, who, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And it's Isaiah he's talking about. Behold the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. So the last words there in verse 23 refer to that prophecy that Isaiah gave 700 years before Jesus was even born. The child born in Israel would be God with us, Emmanuel. So that very name declares that God is engaged with his creation. Indeed, very much more than just engaged. God in Jesus Christ actually joins himself to the world of men. He actually becomes a human being. That is the central belief of Christianity, the incarnation, the God becomes man, not just in appearance, he doesn't just appear as a man, he actually becomes a human being, goes through the whole process of human birth and growth and maturity. Why does God do that? Why does God humble himself like that? Did he feel the need to let us know he's really there? No, he could have done that in really obvious ways, bigger ways, right? Like every time there was a full moon, there could be a different word written on it that you could read from earth. He could have done it like that. Of course, what language would he pick and how would that work out? Who's going to translate? 
Um, he could have done spectacular things. So maybe he just came to be a human to kind of check things out, kind of find out what was really going on down here. Well, that's not it, because he knows everything. His knowledge is complete and limitless, and there's nothing God doesn't know. So there's none of that kind of stuff going on there. His coming actually was purposeful. And we can see the purpose in the words of the angel. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So God's purpose is to deal with people's sins. And we can see that purpose in what the angel says. And in the name Jesus, Yeshua. That name just means he saves. That's what that name means. It's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. They don't really have J's in Hebrew or Greek actually. So we kind of anglicize that name. But Yeshua means he saves. So God comes on our rescue mission with regard to human sin. And his purpose is deliverance. He will save his people from their sins, he says here. So the Christian message is that God became a man to rescue us from our sins. That's the big picture. Why do we need rescue? Because we live in a moral universe that is governed by a creator who himself is a moral being. In fact, he's a perfect moral being. Holy and righteous is he, the Bible says. He's the creator and the judge of humanity. Well, some people might say, well, why is he concerning himself with little human foibles? I mean, there's disease and there's suffering and there's famine and there's death. We're dealing with all that stuff down here. All that stuff came about because of sin. Sin is the root of all of that suffering that we experience down here. That's what he would answer. He would say, all of that is the direct result of sin. So listen, we are moral creatures. We make moral choices all the time. Every day you get up and you make moral choices. Are we going to be kind or cruel? Are we going to give or are we going to take? Are we going to be honest or are we going to spin yarns? Are we going to stand for justice and take risks for the truth? Or are we going to cower away and let other people handle those difficult topics? Are we going to be faithful to our promises or kind of let them slide when something more advantageous comes along that we think we would enjoy better? We make moral choices all the time. Why? Because we're moral creatures. We can't help. Human beings cannot help thinking in terms of right and wrong. Even really evil people hate it when people wrong them. That's wrong. Everybody thinks morally. We can't help it because we're made that way in the image of God who is a moral being. So we all have this moral framework because our maker is moral. And God will judge every human being for their sins. Now that's not only taught all throughout the Bible. It's really the only rational thing you could conclude from the fact that we're moral creatures. We are moral so we choose right and wrong and there's going to be an accounting for that. So the visitation of God in Bethlehem as a human being is God coming as a savior. We need him because every human being you know, every human being that I know, including myself, is a moral failure. We need him because we don't live up to our own rules. I'm a moral failure, you're a moral failure. 
You and I don't even begin to approach the goodness that God expects from his rational and moral creatures. Well, someone might say, well, you show me an example of moral goodness and let's see, because I think I can measure up to that person pretty well. Really? I can do that. I can show you a person like that. I can show you moral goodness in a human being and his name is Jesus. He's the center of the story that we're talking about. So read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only records we have of his life and teaching, and then you tell me face to face, eye to eye, that you are as good as he is. One, one half as good. A tenth as good. You won't get very far. You won't measure up. I don't measure up. So we could talk about our sins all day long, our sins against God, our sins against other people, but the greater sins are the ones against Him. The worst sins are against the highest good. Obviously, the worst sin is to go against the highest good, right? And what's the highest good? That's God. Humans are so estranged from God, they're so lost, to use Jesus' word, they never even think about those sins. They're not even worried about offending God or turning against God or blaspheming God or anything like that. They just think how I deal with my neighbors and stuff like that. That's, that's the only sins I have to worry about. Yet in the Bible, when the best men realize that they're the greatest sinners, when the best men figure out that they're really sinners, it's the realization that they've offended God that breaks their heart. That's, that's what brings them to the repentance and putting their trust in God. That's what humbles them. We owe God. He's our maker. We owe him complete devotion and ongoing worship, our highest love, our greatest service, our perfect trust. How we doing? How we doing? Few people, few people even weigh those sins as even something they think about. They just think about whether they may have stolen something or lied to somebody or hurt somebody's feelings or been cruel or something like that. But let's just stick with our, let's stick with our own attitudes about it. Let's stick with measuring ourselves by how we treat other people. The way we hurt them, the way we fail them. Let's leave God out of it just for a bit. Most people measure themselves by other people instead of by some kind of standard. They say, well, I'm as good as so-and-so or most people that I know. I'm better than most people I know. Okay, I might be a sinner. I might be. But I am a middle-range sinner. I am not the worst of the worst. I might not be no saint, but I'm not the worst of the worst. And since God is supposed to be loving, 85% of Americans say God is loving, then he's got a grade on a curve. He's just got to do that. Love grades on a curve. So the idea is, I'm saying, if I'm a moral C, and I'm going to give myself a C plus, because really I am a little bit better than other people. <laughs> I must be going to heaven because I'm a C. So whether people verbalize that or not, or even think that way consciously, that's kind of how they really do process all of these things, these ideas. I'm better, I'm as good as anybody else. Well, that's kind of sad because it actually diminishes your significance as a person to think that way. And you're certainly diminishing God's greatness to think that way. Because God is good, people. And God doesn't say, okay. 
God is good. I mean, good right through. Totally good. Righteous, holy, perfect. He can't be good and great on a curve. If he approved of sea level righteousness, sea, that's the letter, not sea level like C's. <laughs> He, he, to do that, if he said C is good enough, he would, he would literally be approving of sin. Of a lot of sin. A ton of sins that bring you all the way down to a C. And he wouldn't do that if he was good. The day God says that sin is no big deal and a C is just fine, that's the day that goodness goes out of the universe altogether. Because suddenly you would have an arbitrary God who just kind of makes it up as he's going along. He can't be perfect if he does that. But the real God can't be anything less than perfect. Objection, objection to what you're saying. I, uh, you claim that God is loving. If God doesn't grade on a curve, how can he be loving? That's a really low view of love. It really is. We think love is to indulge evil. That's how corrupt we are. You're not loving unless you indulge my evil. Yeah, but everybody sins. Good, you got that one. That's a core Christian doctrine. Everybody sins. That's right, except God. He doesn't sin. So here's a thought. God being the greatest and best and highest of beings and the very source of morality, his righteousness should be the highest, right? And his goodness should be perfect. Perfect goodness. And his love should be the highest. Complete devotion to benefit and bless other people. So a good God should intensely hate evil. He must also intensely desire righteousness and holiness and truth to prevail always and everywhere. A loving God should have the intense desire then when looking at his wicked creatures to rescue them, to redeem them. So God's love is just as infinite and just as strong as his zeal for all things to be good and right and true. And his passion to redeem should be just as strong as his passion to judge and destroy evil. His love is so strong it will endure anything to make right what is wrong. He will endure anything. So he has made a way for us. That's the good news. He's made a way for us that honors him all that he is. And it, of course because he's God it has to be on his terms not ours, right? Our terms are give us a C and let us in. His terms are no. I approve of no evil. I cut no slack towards any sin, any wrongdoing in my universe. But I will come and solve your sin problem. God's goodness, his justice, targets sinful creatures for destruction. And that's why we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued from God's 
arrow of judgment that's pointed at our heart. He's aiming his just arrows at our heart. How can we be rescued? What will save us? God will save us. He will save us. Not by turning away from justice. God won't do that. Or he will not ignore justice. That would be grading on a C. But he will do it by taking upon himself the full just penalty that we deserve. That's how he's going to do it. It's the only way. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The birth of Jesus is completely bound up with this purpose that God has to rescue sinners like us. Redemption. To die as a sinless man in the place of mankind. He dies. This is what the Bible actually says. This is Bible language right here. Peter, 1 Peter. He dies the just for the unjust. With his own life, he pays our debt to justice. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to serve. So some people want God to come down and make a big show. Jesus came to serve us. That's why he was born in a stable to poor working class people. It does not benefit God at all to be born so low unless, unless he came with the purpose of serving us. And he died this miserable, cruel, merciless death because we deserve a death like that. Here's the miracle of miracles. God's love is so great. It's so great that he came here and lived a perfect life, a life approved by God, and then offered up that life to Rome's masters of cruelty so we could become his children forever. That's what he did. It's, a, it's spectacularly good news. It's unbelievable, almost, because it seems too good to be true. But that's what we call the gospel, good news. A perfect redemption provided by a perfect savior. So why doesn't God come down and make himself known? He did. He did. And he exceeded our wildest expectations. Would you rather have God come down and show you that he's real and give you a lecture? Or would you rather he come down and die for your sins? Which would you prefer? Me too. Number two, the man Jesus who was God incarnate was a better human being than any human being you know and a better human being than any great author's imagination has ever conjured up. Why aren't they writing new Jesuses all the time? Nobody can comprehend that kind of goodness. No human being can do it. The reason Christians speak so confidently of Christ as the only Savior, as the only way to God, isn't because we want to be exclusive or narrow-minded or smug or anything like that. Jesus is simply and unexpectedly the most amazing person who ever lived on this earth. Without parallel. Utterly without parallel. And why he came perfectly addresses the very questions of our existence. And solves our deepest need, which is to be reconciled with God. That's what we need. And because we stand condemned before God's justice and need a basis for that reconciliation, Jesus is the only way that made that problem 
go away because he solved it with his own life, standing in our place. There's no plan B. If you turn away from him, what's your hope of reconciliation? What are you going to, you really going to pull the C thing when you get there? Standing before God? Don't I get it? Don't I, don't you grade on a curve? One Bible student who was fully aware of his own sinfulness after he grasped finally the central message of the Bible. He said it this way, and I just love this. He said, there was only one hope for me that the infinite wisdom of God might make a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that I might become a child of God. He said, this is exactly what happened and I will sing of it forever. I hope that's where you are, my friends, because Jesus, because of Jesus, sinful men are truly reconciled to God. Are you a sinner? There's a savior. There's a savior. You and I cannot earn the right to become God's children. We're already too far behind. We've blown it far too many times. Jesus earned it for us. It's his gift of love. So all we need to do, all he asks is that we receive this gift with humility. And that's called faith, believing the good news. Believing the good news is true. Accepting him personally as the true God and Savior of mankind. Then you too will sing forever because every child of God loves the Father and will worship him forever. Now, it's true that some people cannot accept this. Some want nothing to do with it. Bending the knee to Jesus would totally cramp their style, you know? So no thank you. To them, the idea of living for God is like fingernails on a, on a chalkboard. Do they, do they, what do you do with a whiteboard? I don't think, young people probably don't know what it's like hearing fingernails on a chalkboard. It's a horrible, it's a horrible experience. Makes your flesh crawl. And we used to do it to our teachers all the time. That was a sin. <laughs> Others hear this and think that God would become a man to save unworthy men. It's just too good to be true. It's, it's too amazing. It's too wonderful. Such love like that cannot exist. God would not love me that much. But he does. And he did. And it really happened in history. He was born in that lowly stable. He did live a fully righteous life. He did heal the sick. He raised the dead. And he spoke the most profound words among men of any time or any place that has never been surpassed in 2,000 years. And he changed people from worldly-minded men and women to God-minded men and women. God-honoring people. And those people have kept the story alive. Even at the cost of their lives, they still tell the story. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You cannot save yourself, but if you believe in him and receive him and put yourself in his hands, he will save you. That's what he came for. That is what he came for. So God did appear on earth. He didn't just show up though. He prepared the way through many prophets that had spoken long before about his coming. Things that were very specific and very detailed and he fulfilled all of those things. And then was the, when the time was right, he came. He came into our world. So let me just kind of conclude with a passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians. He said, when the fullness of time came, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So the one who comes to Jesus is no longer a sinner in the eyes of God. He's a child, a son or a daughter. Not to be condemned, but adopted into God's family. And he'll be there forever. Jesus came to make sinners children. So let us believe and rejoice in the good news. Pray with me if you would. Lord, you are greater, better, and higher than the mind of men. You do all things well. And by this, your plan of salvation, which you inaugurated in, from the foundation of the world, it's the best of all. You magnify your love over all of our failures. And you raise us up to be sons and daughters. So we thank you with great humility for this gift. And we ask you to help us share it with others who need the truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.